listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Hey again, good morning. I'm glad to be with you today as we continue our look and journey through the Gospel of Luke, finishing up chapter 7 this morning. We're going to see several men and women in the text that are really shocked when they encounter the real Jesus, when they find out who Jesus really is, when they see him uh, for who he wants them to see All of these men and women that we'll encounter in chapter 7 had particular expectations, certain things that they expected to be of Jesus or certain things that they wanted Jesus to do for them or in their lives. They all had these expectations of what he was supposed to do. And as they got closer to the real Jesus, as he reveals himself to them, they find themselves shocked sometimes crushed, sometimes not understanding. Perhaps you'll resonate with them as we see them. Maybe you're here this morning as a follower of Jesus and you're not understanding how your family could possibly be in the situation that it is in. You couldn't understand how your marriage is in the place that it is. You've heard all your life about who you think Jesus is, and then when you compare it to your situation, they, they look so different. Maybe, maybe you don't understand why in the world these dark clouds of depression just seem to loom over you day after day. And when you think about who Jesus is and what he said about your life, that it is supposed to be abundant even in the here and now, you find yourself confused. Shocked even as these in chapter 7. As we walk through these 40 verses together, my prayer is that each and every one of us on an individual basis would be drawn closer in relationship with the Jesus of the Bible today. That we wouldn't be in relationship with the Jesus that we have created in our own imaginations. That we wouldn't fall in closer relationship with the Jesus that other people out there have told us about, but that we would fall in love and uh, be in a better communion with Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, as we look in chapter 7 today. And so, if you've uh, been with me before as I preach, I, I like for us to stand. If you, if you have a second, because you do, I have you for several seconds. So I'd stand, if you're able, stand with me, and uh, at least this first part of the passage, I'm going to read, if you'll just follow along. Again, it's Luke chapter 7. We'll, We'll first look at verses 11 through 17. The gospel writer records, soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the the bearers stood still, and 
He said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So I first want us to see in verses 11 through, 11 through 17, the compassionate Lord. R.C. Sproul says of these seven verses that if this were the only passage that survived the life of Jesus, that there is enough in it to reveal his sweetness, his excellency, his person, his power, and his saviorhood. We can live the rest of our lives trusting just this much information about the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I read that, I was like, man, that is, that's quite the statement, about seven verses. So let's dig in here together. We see right away in verse 11 with soon afterward that we're supposed to see this in connection with last week's passage, verses 1 through 10, that this follows the healing of the centurion's servant. And now Jesus finds himself in the middle of a place called Nain, in the middle of a funeral procession. And he sees this woman who the text says has already implied, buried her husband, and now she is burying her only son. And here this woman is walking with men who are carrying her son on a bier, an open coffin, if you will. As Jesus sees her, he begins to speak to this man who is dead, laying on this bier, wrapped in burial cloths, and he tells him to arise. Now, I think we expect, at least most of us who are familiar with the scriptures in some way, expect Jesus at this point to perform a miracle, don't we? Like we, we get to this point in the Gospel of Luke and we're like, okay, I, I know what Jesus is about to do. He sees a dead man. This guy's laying here. His mom is really sad. So Jesus is going to do what he does. He's going to make this man come back to life. He's going to resurrect this man. The centurion servant was almost dead. The widow's son is dead. He's just going to do what he does. He's going to make him come back. To life. That's what we expect. And so, I don't know about you, sometimes when you're reading, you just keep going. Because Luke chapter 7 has Jesus recorded as raising this dead man to life. But I think that if we do, we've missed so much of what Luke is conveying here. Look there in verse 13. It's recorded that when the Lord saw her, he had what on her? Compassion on her. He tells this woman, in fact, not to weep. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. But two things. First, this is the first time in the Gospel of Luke that Dr. Luke records Jesus as Lord. That must be significant, right? This is the first time that Jesus is referred to as Lord. Second, Jesus is moved by the woman's pain. We know that because he stops here and he deals with this woman's grief. I want you to see right, right away that the rule and reign or the kingdom of God that we see Jesus inaugurating is not only seen in the healing of physical pain, but Jesus also comes as a ruler and a reigner of our entire selves. 
Like he also deals not only with our physical bodies, but he also deals with our emotional selves and our spiritual selves. His kingdom means that the whole self can now be made new. In the last two weeks, partners in our McDonough congregation have lost a dad, have lost a grandmother, and have lost a baby. I know Miss Barbara talked to her just this morning. She has lost her mother. Those are real things. That is real pain here in the midst of our lives. Maybe, maybe you're feeling a whole bunch of other things. Maybe you're in the throes of the effects of sin in this world, in your life, in your own ways. It's important in this moment that we recognize that the Lord, as Dr. Luke refers to Jesus as here, meaning my sovereign one or the one who rules over all things with all authority and all power, isn't just one who comes at people in their grief and says, don't cry. That's not what Jesus is communicating here, is he? Because here's the sovereign one meeting with this widow in her grief and pain as she deals with the effects of sin. And she says, do not weep. He says, do not weep as the sovereign one who is in control and in authority of all things. And he sees us in our suffering and he dispenses compassion. And this morning, around 5.30, I received a text from Chaz and Candace Kilgore. Some of you know them, they're partners in McDonough. And they had the blessing of welcoming baby Charlie into the world this week. And Chaz and Candace text, and they say, hey, uh, would you pray? Charlie's temperature has dropped below normal levels, and we are really sad that we might not be leaving the hospital today with our baby. And I just finished studying this text. I'm, I'm preparing to preach this before you. It was as if the Lord would say, I am there. Would you remind them in this moment that I meet people with compassion? That's what I do. I'm the sovereign Lord. I'm in control and in authority over all things. Would you just trust in my name? We aren't supposed to be numb about Jesus's miraculous powers. We aren't supposed to find ourselves reading along in Luke chapter 7 thinking, of course Jesus is going to raise this man from the dead, but rather we as individuals made in the image of the living God are supposed to be moved and marvel at his willingness to intercede on the behalf of sinful human beings. We aren't just Bible bots rattling off verses, but people who know when Jesus says he is near the brokenhearted, that he actually sends his Holy Spirit to administer grace to us in our time of need. Do you believe that? That's not something that we just say. It's something that Jesus actually does for his followers. 
In verse 16, as soon as this resurrection takes place, all those who are around, rightly so, are seized with fear and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. Now, they didn't get it all right, did they? Because Jesus is certainly a great prophet, but he is much more than a great prophet, isn't he? And we'll see that in just a moment that he is the Messiah, They didn't know who Jesus was exactly, but they were certainly right that God had come into human history and he had visited his people. It's no coincidence that Luke records these two miracles before we get to verse 18 because word was spreading, verse 17, through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. And then this word reaches... John the Baptist in verse 18, if you're there in the text, where we begin to see that Jesus is not only the compassionate Lord, but second, he's the prophesied Messiah. Look there in verse 18 with me. Luke records, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Verse 24, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did then you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messengers before your face who will prepare your way before you. Verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he has a a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton. Now, they... Okay. A glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Okay, you say that was a lot to read. You even got lost in your own Bible, Chris. Okay? And, and I realize that this is one of the stranger portions of Scripture, especially in chapter 6. 
And I'll also be honest with you, perhaps I've heard it taught this way, or as I've read this passage throughout the years, maybe I just came to it on my own reason. But when I've read this, I've always thought that John the Baptist was trying to teach his disciples something by going and having them question Jesus. That this was his attempt to get them to get their eyes off of him and now on to Jesus who is actually here in front of them doing ministry, inaugurating his kingdom. But the more I've read it, the more I'm convinced that what we're given here is a window into the heart of a prophet. Think about with me. Jesus is growing in popularity. He's performing all kinds of miracles, healings, resurrections. He's doing all of this for the people everywhere. Word is spreading about him all over the place. And where is John the Baptist? Where? He's in prison. Everything seems to be going well for Jesus and his ministry, but John the Baptist, who was preparing the way for the Messiah, is stuck in prison because he spoke out about a king's moral issue. John was utterly convinced about Jesus at his baptism in Luke chapter 3, where he had said in verse 16 there, I baptize you with water, but there is one who is mightier than I who is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not, un- not worthy to untie, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then right after that, what does John see himself? He sees the heavens open up. Luke 3.22, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. John's already seen all of this. He's already, he's already talked about, he's been preparing the way so that so that those would be ready and prepared for the coming Messiah, and yet now John finds himself in prison. His expectations about who Jesus was haven't been met, have they? He was ready for Jesus to issue judgment in the here and now, as he said in chapter 3, verse 17, that Jesus's winnowing fork is in hand to clear this threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That wasn't the Jesus that he was hearing about. He, he was hearing about this Jesus who was going around performing good works, administering his grace to women who needed it, healing dead men, caring for those in need. He didn't hear anything about Jesus dispensing judgment. So I don't think that John was trying to teach his disciples something. No, I think that John was doubting in that moment that Jesus was the Messiah. You say, how could that be? He's a prophet. Have you ever read the book of Jonah? Right? Here's a a, a man who was running far from God even though he had received the word of the Lord. You would expect then for Jesus to give John's disciples some reason for John to believe that he was, that would line up with his preconceived thoughts. Like, yes, John, I am the one. 
I am the one who's come to bring judgment. But no, in verse 22, Jesus tells them, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Now, was John wrong about Jesus being the judge? No, absolutely not. But here, Jesus was stringing together a whole list of things that the prophet Isaiah had previously prophesied about the coming Messiah. He was giving John a bigger picture about who he was than this small piece of who John was expecting. And I'm comforted. I don't know about you. I'm comforted in this moment that Jesus doesn't put John on blast here. That he doesn't hear John's questions, that he doesn't hear John's doubting and begin to rebuke him. No, instead he invites him in to closer relationship with him who is the compassionate Savior. He's the promised Messiah. Do you have doubts that Jesus is who he says he is? And bring them, the, bring them to him. Take them to the Lord Jesus. He will ultimately prove it to you through his word. And we see in his word that he lived a perfect life. He died a death that you and I deserve to die. He was buried and he was resurrected from the grave, from death on the third day. Jesus says of those ultimately that do not turn away, when they realize that Jesus might not meet all of their expectations in verse 23, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus now in verse 24 turns to the crowds about John. They just heard the exchange between he and John's disciples, and Jesus doesn't want anyone to get the wrong impression. Just because John is having a moment of doubt, it doesn't nullify the fact that he was a great prophet, and Jesus wants them to see that. After all, who did they go out into the wilderness to see? A weak man? Like a reed shaken by the wind? No. Did they go out looking for a man dressed in soft clothing? Verse 25. No, they went to see a prophet. Verse 26. And John wasn't just any prophet. He's the prophet that was written about in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, that is preparing the way for the Messiah. He, he is a man a prophet that was prophesied about. There's no man born of women, woman, greater than John, Jesus says in verse 28. And yet he goes on to say, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, I want to ask you for a second. Who was the greatest prophet in the Old Testament? I'm not trying to trick you. Sorry. I, I put you on the spot. Okay, I'm, I, I may say something, um, uh, a little, I don't know the word, um, controversial, okay? But I, I think this is going to prove the point that Jesus was making. If you think about it for a second, the, the greatest prophet in the Old Testament, Jesus is saying, is not Jonah, obviously. It's not Jeremiah, it's not Isaiah. It's, it's not Moses. No, it's John the Baptist. Now you say, Chris, John the Baptist is written about in the New Testament, okay? 
He's written about in Luke chapter 7. That's what we're reading right now. I know what I'm reading. I'm reading the New Testament. It, it, the Old Testament ends in Malachi. We are three, three books in, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Come on. Here's what I mean. While we read about him in the New Testament, John the Baptist is still under the Old Covenant, and Jesus says that there was no one greater than him. But John was still, as one commentator put it, R.C. Sproul, on the outside looking in. Because John hadn't yet experienced the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. We now know of it and can testify to it. Does that make sense? That's, that's who we are. That's why we are even different in the kingdom than John the Baptist, who Jesus says was the greatest of all born of woman. That's why the writer of Hebrews announces that we have a better covenant. We have a better kingdom. We live in an even more blessed time in redemptive history than even John. That's the point that Jesus is trying to make. And John was born to announce that this kingdom was arriving in Jesus, that it was being inaugurated in the Son of God, and he was come, he has come to do that. You would think that standing there, hearing Jesus speak of his forerunner, his kingdom, after having experienced the miracles, after seeing the sick made well and the dead raised to life, that all would turn and repent of their sins in that moment. And yet, in verse 30, we see that some rejected this message. They rejected Jesus as Messiah. And so Jesus begins this really strange statement. He begins to compare this generation in verse 31 to a bunch of children playing outside. Because here's the deal. Children always make up games, don't they? In fact, my two-year-old has recently started this game with me where I clench my hand, and he has decided that within this hand, every single time, if I were to bring him down right now, and I would show you my clenched fifth, he would say, Baby Yoda, because he is convinced that baby Yoda is within this hand. And so he, he opens finger by finger this clenched fist. And when, when it's all opened, baby Yoda just tickles him to death. And he loves it. Because children make up games. They just make up games. So Jesus is giving us this picture that there are a bunch of children, that this generation is like a bunch of children standing in the city square talking to one another. And one of them is saying, hey, I'm going to play the flute and you guys dance. And other kids are like, we don't want to dance. We don't want to play that game. The other kids are like, hey, we should play funeral. And the other kids are like, no, we don't want to play funeral. That's not fun, and it's weird. We don't want to be sad and mourn. I hate that game. That's the generation that Jesus is describing. Do you see how ludicrous that is? Jesus is saying about the generation before him that they are childish. They're acting like children who make up games and complain to each other. John the Baptist came, Jesus says in verse 33, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. 
The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. John wasn't liked because he lived in a strict way. Jesus wasn't liked because he was happy and he hung out with sinners. You're a confused and childish generation. And so Jesus concludes in verse 35, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. You see, you won't know if your decision is a wise one until you see its results. And so Jesus is essentially saying, you'll see. You'll see who I am, that I'm the prophesied Messiah. You'll see who I am. I am the compassionate Lord. You're going to see. You'll know that Jesus' way is right as you begin to follow him. Christ's followers can testify to that, can't we? You'll know that Jesus' way is right if you follow him. Jesus is the compassionate Lord, the prophesied Messiah. And finally, I want us to see together in verses 36 through 50 that Jesus is the Savior of sinners. Hear this. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Now, think about the way that Jesus was greeted by the other two characters in the story. Jesus, being invited into a Pharisee's house, is reclining at the Pharisee Simon's table when a known sinner comes in and sits at his feet with a really, really, really expensive jar of ointment. Now, we don't know all that is going on in her heart and mind at the moment, but we must see, according to the text, that she's extremely attracted to the fact that Jesus seems to be able to offer mercy and forgiveness to those who are in most need of it. And yet the host of the dinner, the Pharisee, can't even say all that he's thinking out loud. I want you to see some irony here, though. Because as he's thinking to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what kind of woman this was touching him. Jesus speaks up, saying something to him. Maybe knowing exactly what Simon the Pharisee was thinking as he was talking to himself, right? Now that should have gotten Simon's attention. Someone who can read someone else's mind is sitting at my table. That should provoke me to some sort of feeling other than disdain. He sounds like a prophet to me. And Jesus begins to tell this story in verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Simon, you, you did well. You, you understood what I'm communicating. Then turning toward the woman, he said to him, said to Simon in verse 44, do you see this woman? I entered your house. 
You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Why? Because she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, I think that what we see is Simon the Pharisee is utterly convinced of his own righteousness before God. And therefore, he thinks... If any, he needs little forgiveness. The woman with the alabaster flask, she was well aware that she was a sinner. In fact, she knew everybody else around her in all of the town, everywhere in the city, they all knew that she was a sinner, and yet they both had the same spiritual condition, didn't they? Sick, in need of healing, in need of a Savior. The woman just happened to recognize her need. That's the difference here between the two party guests. As, as Jesus finishes his story, he tells them that her sins are forgiven and everyone begins to ask, who is this that even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Now listen, I don't know who Jesus is to you. I don't know what you expect out of him. I don't know what you expect from him, if anything. Maybe you don't even believe that Jesus was a real historical figure. But here's what I know. The Jesus of the Bible is the one who longs to know you and he longs to forgive you. He's the Jesus who was prophesied about long ago in the Old Testament, and he is the Jesus who is here now ready to dispense his compassion to the lowliest of sinners. Dane Ortland, in his book Gentle and Lowly, gives this beautiful illustration about a doctor who travels deep into the jungle to administer medicine to a group of individuals to a tribe who were, who were being ravaged by a particular disease. And this doctor had figured out the cure that was needed. And so he, on his own expense, who needed no reimbursing because he was very wealthy, put all of the supplies necessary in a plane and, and, and had it transported to this tribe. And when he arrived... He was all ready to administer and dispense his healing medicine. But what he found is that the afflicted began to refuse the medicine. They wanted to take care of it themselves. They kept saying to the man, hey, we can heal ourselves. We can figure this disease out. This is something that we can cure all the while. Everyone... All their friends and family members were dying in their midst of a, of a disease that this man had the cure to right in front of them. And so finally, a few brave men step up. 
And they step forward to receive the medicine that this doctor had flew in to give them. When those men step forward, what do you think that doctor feels? He feels joy. He feels utter joy, and his joy increases to the degree that the sick come to him for help and healing. Does that make sense? It's the whole reason that the doctor came to give the people that in which they need, to make the sick people well, to bring those who could not help themselves help, healing, restoration, salvation. Dear Christian, when you go to Jesus for help in a time of need, when you go to Jesus for forgiveness of sins, he doesn't grow angry with you when you come to him with your doubts. No, that's the reason that he came. He came, he suffered, and he died, and he was resurrected so that he could offer you limitless grace. And while Jesus as Savior may be the thing we say most about who Jesus is, how often do we actually come to him for the forgiveness that we need? Like we're, we're really good at communicating what Jesus has done on behalf of humankind. That Jesus came and he lived a perfect life. He died a death that we deserve to die, right? You've heard that plenty of times. He's the savior of sins and yet, I'm guilty as well, and yet I so often fail in going to my compassionate Lord and Savior. And yet that's the thing that he desires from his children. He's at the right hand of his father now, continuing to dispense compassion on those that are hurting and grieving like the widow of Nain. He's advocating for you before the father when you bring to him your doubts that even as we see in the text this morning, the greatest of prophets had. And he's ready to save and forgive you if you would go to him knowing your desperate need, such as the woman with the alabaster flask.